If it is to be said, so it be, so it is. This is Even Star Waco, a special series by my brother, my captain, my podcast. Normally, our adventures have us journeying across Middle Earth, but here we travel to the gilded halls of Logan Roy as we discuss the final season of Secession. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. <laughs> and I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is The Monsters, episode one of the final season of Secession, season four. Our spoiler warning for the series is... We're spoiling Secession. Uh, we just assume you've watched it all. We're going to be covering the newest episodes. We may tangentially spoil stuff elsewhere, but whatever. Fuck it. Fuck off. We're, we're just spoiling it. Uh, before we do get into our reactions to the first episode, uh, in the off chance this is your first time listening to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, we are generally a Lord of the Rings podcast with the occasional diversion into Star Wars. Um, but because me and Emily, my co-host, both really love Secession, and it's just a lot of fun to talk about as a nice little palate cleanser from uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, we just decided, fuck it, we're going to cover it. Um, that's about as many fucks as I can <laughs> fit into this opening section, so why don't we get into the discussion? So to open things up, let me ask you a question, Emily. What do Greg's fingers smell no! like? Oh, um, they smell. <laughs> oh, they smell like whatever Gollum's fingers smell like. <laughs> okay, we got our uh, Lord of the Rings tie-in for the episode. We're clear. Uh, but honestly, why? Why is everybody so fucking happy? Oh, it's the weirdest thing, isn't it? Like, so I didn't get to watch this until Monday evening, um, and so spent all day Monday dodging spoilers on social media but like the only thing i couldn't avoid was that weird little non-ass mac ass mac greg does to tom um where tom is like waiting for food or something and he looks tom looks so hungover like more hungover than i have ever felt in my life and that was the only thing i'd seen in advance of the episode and so went into it being like oh my god it's gonna be the aftermath of like a whole bunch of shit going down. It's going to be like Tom and Shiv going at one another because Tom uh, totally flipped on her and um, everyone's going to be like really grim and downtrodden. And then it was the literal opposite of that. And it was the most like, I felt like I'd accidentally swapped to the channel. Like, I mean this affectionately, but I, I felt like I'd swapped to the channel midway through a very different movie and was like, what is happening here? What is going on in this episode? This is unnervingly cheerful. Yeah, it was one of those things where, like, because there is some kind of time jump from the end of season three, it's almost like, did I miss an episode? Are they doing, like, a double episode premiere? Um, it is really funny. And it's actually funny that this kind of starts in the same place as the series premiere, as in it's Logan's birthday and he's having a little party. Um, but this time the kids are not there. Um, so Logan doesn't get to dunk on Iverson this time around. <laughs> uh, but it is... I want to talk about that gap real quick because there was a chance that they could have picked up right from where season three ended. Like it could be Tom and Shiv talking that night as Shiv kind of needles him about the betrayal. Um, but they just kind of fast forwarded past all that. The Roy kids have kind of coalesced a little bit around each other. Um, Tom is completely out with Shiv um, and is basically Logan's boy. <laughs> Logan even calls him Tommy, Ugh. which is, you know, an endearing sign of affection there. Um, so what did you think about that kind of shift in paradigm or at least the 
time skip forward? Um, I liked it. I liked it because I think like one of the things that the show has always been good slash interesting on is like it's not overly concerned with timelines um, because I think like mm-hmm. having season four start with Logan's birthday again kind of implies that it's only been a year that like it the the previous three seasons have only covered a year um and i'm sure someone out there has done the math on it and can confirm that it is only a year but it's a it's a lot for just one year um it's a lot um and i like that the show is very much like well it is either a year or it isn't and it doesn't really matter because like none of the facts of this show matter like none of the kind of hard truths of this show matter we're all just kind of here to watch the like greek drama of it all and the melodrama of it all um and i and i think there's something kind of nice about just like skipping ahead to only show the parts that are interesting and also only show the parts that are like i guess sufficiently voyeuristic because like i think there would have been something mm-hmm, really interesting mm-hmm. to like watching the immediate fallout between tom and shiv but like we kind of know what it is like shiv would be an asshole about it tom would be like kind of um uh immediately acquiescent to her because he just like what even though that was his ballsiest move all series like he still kind of lacks balls when it comes to shiv and we wouldn't have really seen anything particularly interesting about the two of them but by like skipping all of that and having it be like oh my god they are getting divorced um and having all of that kind of be the the way in which we we enter this season i think adds like a level of like we are really seeing something truly fucked up here in a way that I think following them every step of the way wouldn't have that same, that same level of like voyeurism. Yeah, no, uh, I think it's actually very similar to Downton Abbey or even say uh, house of the dragons first season where there would be like kind of significant time jumps. So like between big events in a calendar year, as opposed to something like say game of Thrones, which is like kind of day to day of all these characters, Um, And I think that allows our imagination to run wild. I also think it gives the writing team a lot of room to like fill in those gaps of possibly what happened since uh, Italy and this. I think the wedding was in Italy at the end of season three. Um, And it almost works like a reverse thing that happened with George R.R. Martin, where after the third book, he he wanted a five year gap, like so that all his kid characters can age up. Um, and then he ended up abandoning that. And then uh, he basically got stuck in where he was writing the books and he's never recovered. Whereas this show, no one kind of knew it was going into the final season. But I kind of wonder if when Jesse Armstrong kind of broke it and like realized that, oh, a time jump here works better, that he's like, well, then let's just make it the final season because because we can jump straight to the kids as a team going up against Logan and we don't have to spend a season, season and a half or half a season like building up to that um, because all these characters have plenty motivations to be where they are at the start of the season that filling that in might not be interesting if this is where it was going to go anyways. Yeah, well, and I also think that it's kind of, you know, I'm not going to make the argument that like Succession is a subversive show or whatever. That's just not, I think, not whatever. not accurate. But, but I think it is a kind of nice turn against a lot of the shows and movies that we've gotten recently where like every second of every character's life is on screen um and this is just bait for you at this point but like you know kenobi right like kenobi is yeah, a show Princess Leia. yeah like but like exactly right and like there is no mystery there is no interest there is no sense that the characters serve a dramatic structure 
the dramatic structure serves the characters, which I don't think is the way to write an interesting story at all. Um, and I and I like, you know, it's this and it's Andor. And I and I and I think that, like, there is something um, good about asking the question, is the story does the story benefit from having to see everything on screen? And and they've gone no here. They've said no. They've answered no. And I think that's the right like thing. Um, and I think there's something also about like giving too many details about what's going on. Succession is unique and good because it is unnervingly accurate about like the corporate world mm-hmm. and in particular like the media world. But like it, I think it could run the risk of not being accurate enough and kind of undermining itself in some ways if it, if it revealed too many details. And it's very good about not revealing too many details. And it only reveals enough to like keep everybody on on their toes and also to kind of do these winking sort of looks at, at its audience being like, yeah, you know who we're talking about. You know exactly who these people are. But never so much that like, I need to know how Princess Leia got her fucking Wookiee leather blaster or holster or whatever it is. Like it, there's just never too much divulged yeah thankfully this isn't part of some giant cinematic universe there probably is a secession pd out there but um, i'm sure it's pretty dope actually uh let's see do you do you want to talk about the disgusting brothers i already asked about greg's fingers but um it (laughs) appears that everyone's favorite uh everyone's favorite little uh ship is officially setting sail together i guess not in a romantic way but they have fully embraced themselves as a combo um and apparently they're dating models now tom may or may not be working out we can't get a good read on whether he actually is or not um so uh what do you feel about greg and tom so i feel many things about them um i think one of the things that i like the most about them is um there is an element of like classical theater in this right like um you know without getting too pretentious but like homoeroticism was an incredibly important literary device element um for let's say a good 1800 years 2800 years uh to be generous and and then the victorians come around and get a little weird about everything and start to wipe homoeroticism out it does survive for quite a long time until the lavender scare uh which came alongside the red scare in the 1950s and then the americans as they always do did a fucking powerhouse job at wiping out queerness from all lit um not just like overt queerness but like winking implicit queerness um and and we've lived in uh the aftermath of that ever since where like um we are constantly stuck in this horrific um turn between things are either queer baiting or they are um good queer representation or whatever um tom and greg as as characters and as a relationship i've always uh, like appreciated and liked and and felt sort of (laughs) like ethically horrified by because it is a return to sort of classical homoeroticism in some ways. Like it, these are guys who are unique and usually in, in, in Greek dramas it is unique because of their sort of nigh super heroic elements. These guys are unique because they're just the biggest fucking losers around. Um, but in their uniqueness, they find a bond, they find and forge a bond. And, and there's always something just like it is, 
simultaneously pushing the bounds of like what masculinity means and what masculinity looks like and also reinforcing what masculinity is and what masculinity looks like um and you know uh, there's a lot of chat about like the the existence of like homosexuality and and the prevalence of it in in, in greek lit and classical lit and one of the important things to to always remember in this is that like it was not a model of like a queer culture right like so much of the homoeroticism that exists in 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 Greek classical lit is like not the model upon which anybody reasonable should like base their um, relationships on. But there is this kind of feeling of like there is a dominant partner and there's a submissive partner. And what do those things, the dominance and the submissiveness, um, you know, uh, display not just about these characters, but about like wider senses of masculinity. And I think this ongoing fight between like Tom, who is just like getting the pulp like fucking be out of him by his wife in his marriage turning around and kind of doing that to greg um but you know to to greg who is like simultaneously kind of willing to put up with it um and and also and if greg fucking thought about anything in his life for for more than a second would realize that he really doesn't need to put up with it because tom is a social climber and greg is born into money um and and greg puts up with all of this bullshit uh, that tom throws at him because he is so desperate to seek out human connection and that is where that kind of classical homoeroticism element comes into it because it's like greg as a man is just totally like divorced and alienated from like other people from society from himself because like he does not fit properly into this conception of masculinity and and tom who is like bullied out of it by his wife has to then kind of find a way to reassert it and and so there's just this like really fascinating and like depraved and 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 like exciting relationship that builds there and i could not have predicted in a million years that it would have gone as balls to the walls insane in this episode as it did like this felt like there was like if it was bubbling below the surface before it is like boiling over now and i'm gonna have to like scree scrape like scrub with my like little pink stuff to get the like ooze off of my um my stovetop now because this was just so much at once that, okay, that's great. I was not expecting anything that intelligent coming out of this podcast. <laughs> um, but like, I mean, that is something that Tom like explicitly says more in the Roman nature because he calls them Nero and Sporus yes. back in season three. Um, but it is funny because I mean, they spent a good chunk of this episode talking about a woman's handbag um, and how <laughs> it's kind of gouged in the current setting. Like it is not like you say, it is not what you would consider traditional masculinity, even though like the house of glass they are currently in is completely built by masculinity and like those kind of structures. So it is funny kind of seeing them at the heart of this. And I think they're pretty clearly like the fan favorites of the show. Um, obviously people have reasons to love a lot of people, but everyone talks about Tom and Greg. Um, so it is kind of funny how they're centered in this. And it really feels like Greg is trying to like play the role now that he thinks he's one of the kids or he he calls himself an unofficial kid in this episode. Um, and I think that's like when he hitched himself with Tom. Um, and now that the ki actual kids are actually gone, uh, Greg kind of has his opening. Um, but I like the point you said where Greg didn't have to do any of this. He could have stayed in his dumb, uh, what, theme park mascot outfit, uh, getting high in his car. Um, and then his dad would eventually, or granddad would eventually leave him plenty of money that he'd be fine. Um, but he, he had to follow Tom and all the rest of the Roy's into this whole fucking mess. Um, and now he, here he is and he's like pretty much just as bad as the rest of them, except he's just more likable and dumb about it. Yep. I, and I think that's kind of the interesting thing, right? Because like Greg gets painted with this outsider status, but actually as he points out in this episode to Carrie, he is like, 
I am basically one of the kids. And and he's right. Like he is, he is like the cousin element, right? We is treated as kind of a joke in the thing, but like he is born into the money. Like he is born into the money. Mm-hmm. Yes, his like dad is out of the picture or whatever, but like in time, he will end up richer than Crasis. Well, if he hadn't fucked up as royally as he did and, and screwed himself out of it, like he would have ended up richer than Crasis. And so he, like Shiv, like Kendall, like Roman has all of that money to play for, but like Shiv, like Kendall, like Roman is just going to screw himself out of it through his own stupidity. Like Greg has just like not learned anything because his money has like insulated him from reality um, or the promise of his money has insulated him from reality. And so even though he has this outsider status and like, oh, it's the corruption and downfall of Greg, it actually isn't like the corruption and downfall story is actually the story of Tom. Where, like, Tom was always a social climber and kind of pathetic in some ways, but, like, Tom was always the one who still had mom and dad at home in Minnesota. He was the, like, down-home country boy. Like, he could have turned around and gone back and, like, made an honest living and an honest man out of himself. But, like, at every point in the series where he's made the choice to not do that, um, he he has, like, suffered a further downfall. And and so rather than, like, you know, him and... It, it, I made the joke on Twitter the other night, but, like, it, it's... He and he and Greg, Tom and Greg are like Hannibal and Hannibal Lecter and Will Graham and Brian Fuller's Hannibal. And that like there will be no good way out for either of them. They're going to destroy each other. And like that is, I think, the kind of intoxicating part of their relationship is just like watching these people who are doing awful things and making awful choices tear each other to shreds in a way that represents the way that like they each want to be torn to shreds. And I think like also kind of answers uh, a kind of deep need that we all have to like be psychologically torn apart in the hopes of becoming better. But like for these guys, they're just never going to fucking become better. They're just going, they're going to die and go straight to hell and it'll be, that's all for them. Yeah. We're famously anti-character arc on this podcast. (laughs) Somehow that's a niche we've kind of cut out for ourselves, but it's like, in in like not a poor writing way, but like in an intentional way, it almost feels like most of these characters, except for Tom, like don't really arc or change or grow in a meaningful way. In fact, most of them just get worse. Um, I think Greg is a prime example. You can say, you know, Roman's changed over this, but he's just kind of kind of become the guy he was born to be, kind of like Elrond talking to Aragorn is like become <laughs> the king. He was, but yes. it's just like he's not fundamentally becoming someone who's either dealing with his own sexual trauma, his own like ostracization from his own family and those fucked up relationships. Kendall is like the king of like oscillating back and forth without ever resetting to a new center. Um, Even when he's at his like top of his game, it doesn't take more than an hour before he's like crying in his own knees, like hunched over, like in an empty room. Um, And then Logan, of course, he's like a rock. Like, I don't think he doesn't feel like he needs to have like an arc because he he's already done that. That happened before the show started. Um, and everyone else is just trying to figure out what to do around him. Um, but at the same time, I think Logan like kind of for one of the first few times in the series looks sad yep. or at least doesn't look like he is winning and knows it. Or he, it's like, or is, is if this is winning, like how great is it? It's like, look on my mighty works in despair kind of thing. Cause here's this uh, birthday party and none of my actual family are really here. And that includes even his like 
several ex-wives. Um, Carrie quickly points out that Marsha isn't even there. So, like, who is there? Like, it, it, Colin might be his best friend that's actually there. Oh, that that was heartbreaking, right? That scene was was just absolutely devastating. I think in so many ways, in the, and then that kind of final scene of um, Logan watching the TV and, and being mad about it and realizing that, all you know, he's built his empire of dirt, um, to, to quote Trent Reznor there. But, like, you know, I think there is... Um, the show is always fun for 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 me because like Logan Roy is from Dundee um, and and there is a an entire episode in Dundee at the VNA which we all hate because it was just a horrible decision and just the epitome of everything wrong with Dundee Council. Um, but like you know, this show is very like intimately linked to Dundee and to Scotland and the legacy of like the Scottish diaspora. Like you know, people um, you know the 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 tens of thousands of people who fled um, Scotland uh, during deindustrialization um, and never came back because it the going was fucking tough here um and you know the proclaimers have a song a great song about a, a letter from america um but you know logan Roy represents a very specific kind of like not just scottish man but like dundee man like dundonian man logan <laughs> Roy, um, and like the the kind of emotional component of of logan and what we're seeing on screen is really fascinating like so so um scottish men are um more likely to die young um if they manage to die young their life expectancy is still like vastly shorter than everybody else's um like you know dundee men in dundee have it even worse like that the life expectancy for men born in like 1960 in dundee is like 64 years right which is like a solid 10 to 20 years less shorter than everyone else like it is this is a it is a truly fucking broken place and has been truly fucking broken for for a hundred years um we are the drug deaths capital of europe um we are i think like <laughs> all of our constituencies like all of our our kind of local areas in in dundee are rank among the top 500 most deprived in scotland and in the uk um it is a it is a grim place where like really bad things have have happened to the people here not by not through their choice but through the mechanics of, of capital and 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 it leaves a psychological and medical and and cultural and spiritual scar on people um and so to see logan roy um at the end of his life as he is um allegedly at the top of his game you know he he's he's richer than he's ever been before um he's accomplished more than he ever did um and he's he's getting ready to die and and there he is he's sad and alone and all of the things that weren't there for him when he was a young boy in dundee um and then later you know leaving dundee to seek out better uh, ends in, in america none of those things have been answered for him so he's got all the money in the world and he's escaped you know the the shittiness of the city or whatever um but it hasn't fixed anything. And I think that in some ways is really the American immigrant story. Um, more than anything it is coming to America in search of greater fulfillment and, and peace and prosperity and, and, and hope. And instead finding that that's all just fucking bullshit. And, and when you die, you are going to die unhappy, ostracized from your children, surrounded by money, but poor in every other imaginable way. And like, we're really just watching Logan go through that now when he was kind of promised everything but that. Yeah, because so he takes Colin to this diner and my first uh, thing that I always think is, oh, a diner scene. This is going to remind me of Heat. <laughs> um, and Secession has actually done a couple scenes like this before, I think most prominently with like Kendall and Tom and Greg and Tom. Um, they're usually talking about prison and like what kind of waffles <laughs> to order at the time. But uh, you realize like Colin isn't really a character. Yeah, um, He is almost like 
vaguely an Anton Chigurh type because he only kind of like pops up to remind you that Kendall killed a guy. Um, and that here he Logan is trying to like sit down with him and have a conversation. But like both Colin doesn't have a character to us as the audience, but then Colin's only attempt at saying anything other than right or yeah or okay was he was going to tell some story about what his father told him about death. But like Logan just cuts him off right away. Um, and then it, this, like, what should be theoretically like a two-hander dialogue scene just becomes a monologue, essentially, for mm -hmm. Logan, um, which, like, really plays on his Shakespearean chops as, like, just a classically trained actor. And even, like, his whole, you know, he's asking, you know, Colin, what is a person? What is a man? It's very Hamlet-esque from his, like, Act 5 thing, you know, what makes a man? Um, it just, you can tell it is something that's wrapped up in something like, classically Shakespearean in what it is, but then like the actual details of the monologue, he's talking about like economic units and forming a market. And it's like all this idea about how life is fleeting and we have to figure out what life's about. And then he can only contextualize it in the kind of corporate bullshit speech that he's been like surrounded his life in. It's like what he's built his empire on. Um, he can't really think outside of it beyond markets and like the restaurant food, food that he's eating right in front of him. Yeah. Yes. I, you know what? Okay. So there's, there's an interesting series of questions related to the show that I think we should probably deal with like up front. Um, there, the first question is like, who should, should be the next Waystar Royco or whatever Gojo Royco or whatever iteration of it we're on? Who should be the next CEO? Um, and then separately to that question, who is the most like Logan? Yeah. No, that's a good question. Um, this is funny because this is where I can get, go into one of my unhinged uh, A Song of Ice and Fire tangents um, because uh, Secession is basically like reskin fanfic of if the Lannister children tried to take down <laughs> Daddy Tywin, like if Cersei, Jamie, and Tyrion could actually get their shit together to work with each other. Um, and one of the big discussions in the book is like, who is actually like Tywin? Cersei thinks she is because she's the only one who takes like having and wielding power with any seriousness. Um, but like Tyrion, when he becomes Hand of the King, it's like, oh, wait, Tyrion has the same kind of mind for this as uh, Tywin did. So maybe he's really it. And then Jamie's the one who kind of like, fuck it, I'm too cool for school. I'm never going to worry about ruling. But in something they did not do in the show, but is a very important part of the books is Jamie actually goes out and tries playing the game of politics and is also kind of good at it. Um, so it becomes a question is who really is Tywin's successor? And I think that's almost the same question here because whoever is Tywin's successor in Westeros is also for sure going to not win, um, who's not going to sit <laughs> on the Iron Throne in the end in any capacity. So um, I, it's a question because I don't think about the show that hard. I like it's more of like who I want to win. Mm -hmm. And I want like Tom and Greg somehow to like nice. be like Octavius and Mark Antony, like <laughs> ruling Rome at the end of this. Um, I know that didn't last <laughs> go very well. Uh, you can figure out who you want your Mark Antony to be there. Um, but um, I, I really think in the end, or I think the show is going to take us to a place where we actually think Kendall is going to be the most like Logan, even though like we've spent three seasons realizing how Kendall is not like Logan. Mm -hmm. I just feel like there's a certain kind of depravity and sadness at the core of both of them that I think is just manifested in different ways. But at the core, they are more the same person than the others. But I'm curious what your answer might be to this. So I think in terms of who should be CEO, 
Uh, I I go for the controversial position that it should be Roman. Um, and I think it should be Roman because, like, if you think about the characters that are associated with, e- with each of the siblings, right? Like, Shiv has her little weird politics people and has for, like, the l- last three seasons. Uh, she also has Tom as kind of an off-branch. Kendall doesn't really have anyone. Like, he's always kind of vying for daddy's attention, but, like, and occasionally he has, like, Naomi Pierce. But really, everybody in his life is fleeting, except for the dead kid. Um uh and 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 roman has always associated himself with the real kind of movers and shakers so with jerry frank and carl and like roman himself is a fucking idiot just unbelievably stupid <laughs> and like crass and awful and and a gaping hole of charisma um but he knows who to surround himself with um and 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 he knows how to pick the winners he hasn't really picked the winners by going with the weird the hundred thing but he seems to have better instincts on who the people to be around are mm-hmm. um, and i think that is a kind of good sign and it's also possibly why logan kept sending him to deal with um the other scars guard knots and um so i i think that's the who should but i think the who is the most like logan i actually think is shiv um because like i totally agree that like kendall's kind of whole thing is being this inflection point for logan and being like what is it what does it mean to have this legacy of just this awful evil person hanging over you and you knowing that that you were meant you were raised to be like them and you want to be like them but always just falling short of it but i think shiv doesn't actually fall short of it um shiv may be incredibly stupid and she may be making a lot of the wrong moves right now but i think like emotionally socially she is so much more akin to to logan and i think she is the one you know if kendall doesn't end up killing himself um kendall i think has a has a has a chance a possibility of ending up with someone or not being alone at, at his deathbed um roman i think will be alone at his deathbed um but mostly because he'll probably trip on his dick and die somewhere really embarrassing and <laughs> um, shiv i think will be alone at her deathbed in the same way that logan has been like entirely through her own like machinations and, and i think that is like the the you know the heartbreaking scene at the end of this where it's i can't even talk about it because it'll, it'll make me cry but but you know shiv and tom not discussing the fact that their relationship is at an end and that they are going to be divorced and that it's all over for them. And yet, despite the fact that it's all over for them, um, there could have been a possibility of them having continued this relationship if Shiv weren't a fucking nightmare. Um, and then they they lie on that bed and, and hold hands. Um, that, I think, more than anything about, as, as with most, most of the Shiv scenes, it's not really about Tom. It's mostly about Shiv. Um, and what it is mostly about Shiv is Shiv having to come to terms with well, her not coming to terms with the fact, but us coming to terms with the fact that she is just Logan. Um, she is Logan minus 60 years. And this loneliness that she is feeling now, that loneliness, will she may wrap it up and kind of bury it inside of her, but she is going to be the person sitting in the chair, screaming at people on the phone um, at you know <laughs> two in the morning because the weirdo dickhead looking guy on Fox News <laughs> isn't sufficiently normal looking enough. Um, and then, you know, sitting there alone because no none of, none of her kids have come to, well, if she even has kids none of her kids have come to uh her birthday party and and i think that's where it's going for her depressing though that may be 
Yeah, no, I think there's something really to that because like Logan, Shiv has a tendency to come out punching, um, like come out on the offensive. Like even when she showed up at uh, Tom's apartment at the end of this episode, um, Tom was just like, oh, I didn't know you'd be here. Um, And I mean, Tom wasn't being like super nice either, but she was the quick one to jump to all the models he's been dating and all the fucking he's been doing and this, that or another. Um, And I think that's kind of always how they've been. Shiv has always been more aggressively mean to Tom than the other way Mm -hmm. around. Um, And you can kind of see that reflected when Logan is trying to have someone try to punch him back. Like he's always out with his daggers. And then he's like, yeah, roast me. Someone try to make fun of me. Come at me with punches. And it's just like none of them can. Whereas, you know, Shiv can absolutely get that reaction out of Logan. Like him, like making fun of her in the premiere last uh uh, of la- or the finale of last season is like when she's trying to throw the rules of a ma- majority stakeholder opinion and then Logan just gets up and starts shaking violently and repeating what she's saying like she can actually get that reaction out of him um, and I think that's because it comes from the same place that same kind of fighting attitude um, that I don't want to valorize too much because it mostly just leads to everyone feeling like shit and ending up in a shitty situation. But I think, yeah, in that way, like Shiv really is the most like Logan. Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting that she's kind of this go between right now between and, and, and always kind of has been always this failed good between, I should say, between like um, the not PBS, PBS and the Pierces and 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 Logan, where like, you know, I th- I thought this scene was especially interesting um, with Nan and Pierce and, and all the kids desperately trying to get, what is it, PGN um, on the line um, or buy them for the stupid amount of money, the billions of dollars they don't have. Um, and, and, you know, that whole song and dance of, um, oh, well, Shiv doing the, oh, well, you know, we'll protect your values, we'll protect your values and, and Nan Pierce going, well, but what about the money and what about the futures and what about the stock options? And and that sort of sense that like Shiv wants there to be this possibility of like a good aristocratic class, a good bourgeois class. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's not there. And, and she's so naive that she doesn't even realize that it's not there and that she also can't do it. Um, but she has the kind of vibe of like if Logan had been raised in an American – um, and if, if Logan had been raised in the, the lifestyle and digs that Shiv had, there is a very good possibility, as we see through Kendall, of of him having become more like her and more sort of naive and unwilling to see through through his own stubbornness what the, what the truth of it is. Um, but he didn't. He came from a different set of circumstances and ended up the way he did. And, and Shiv is just permanently missing the boat and sitting around these alleged liberal billionaires and, and not realizing that they just their class interests come first always, no matter how stupid she is about it. Oh, I want to talk about uh, Nan here for a second, because I really love what they did or what they have been doing with this character. Um, first of all, I love Cherry Jones. Um, I think yep. she's excellent. Um, and she's been in a lot of stuff I specific- specifically have watched, <laughs> um, which, yeah, Signs, The Village, and she was uh, vice president and president on 24, <laughs> um, of all things. So, uh, yeah, no, Cherry Jones rules. But, like, I love the fact that because, what, Pierce is supposed to be, like, the liberal equivalent of whatever Waystar Royco is. Um, and you're supposed to think they have better values or ideals. And Nan is just sitting there pretending to be like, oh, I have a migraine. Oh, I don't have an appetite for any of this business stuff. 
Um, it's like, no, she's absolutely just as like kind of bloodthirsty as Logan. Maybe not as bloodthirsty, but that's more in degree, not in kind. Yeah. Um, she is just as much a fuck as the rest of them. Um, as she's like in her palace and wherever that is, Sonoma or Napa Valley or whatever. <laughs> um, it, it is so funny that they don't try to like, they don't try to make her like the newsroom uh, of HBO vintage. Yeah. Like she's not like the good media people versus the bad media people. It's like, no, they're all fucking fuckheads who only care about money in the end. So I like that the, what is supposed to be the mirror version of Logan is more mirror than opposite. Um, that doesn't make any sense. No, I'm sorry, I got you but yeah. it, it is absolutely that, um, what you're supposed to think might be a good countervailing force against the Log or the Roy's in this world is absolutely just the same evil. There, it is not anything different, and I think that's most encompassed by the fact that essentially the Roy's are just going to take over their business, um, anyways. And it's even if it is more left wing or whatever, it doesn't actually mean anything when you're paying nine nine billion dollars ahead or for you know this kind of media franchise. Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. So the the unsureness of the is this Napa Valley? Where is this? Um, that gets to something really interesting that stood out for me about the this episode in particular, which is that like this show is so singularly unimpressed with wealth. Um, and I think like you know mm. you referenced Downton Abbey at the start, and I really like Downton Abbey. I will defend it. Um, despite Julian Fellows being who he is, but like Downton Abbey is incredibly impressed by wealth, and it all you know I was laughing because I went to see um the the real life house that it is based off of or that they filmed at for it this summer, and was like we drove up, and I was like jesus christ is that it it's tiny it's tiny and it looks like shit um and and it's just a massive letdown but like the way they film it in the show really makes it feel like it's a, a sort of fairy tale castle and they're always trying to like show you know the the house and the wealth within it are just as much of a character in downton abbey as as you know as mary or matthew or any of them and Sybil mm -hmm. even probably more so than, than Sybil. May she rest in peace. Um, <laughs> this show does not care. It's not impressed by the wealth. It, it, you know, mm -hmm. um, the the weird little pad that the, the the siblings are in when they're doing all the, the hundred negotiations, it looks like ass. It looks like a, an Ikea catalog. It looks like shit. Um, Logan's house, you know, it is ostensibly grand and there are features in it that we know property-wise are grand, but it also looks like shit. Um, uh, I was about to call him Steve for some reason. Um, Tom? and Shiv's house um, also <laughs> looks ugly um, ugly pallid gross um, and Shiv's wardrobe in particular was really interesting to me because like Shiv is a billionaire or as near to a billionaire as she can possibly be she should have all of the money in the world and yet in this entire episode she's wearing a bra that doesn't fit she's wearing a cheap looking shirt that doesn't fit her and a bra that doesn't fit and her pants have like threads coming out of them and they don't look right and they're not tailored and they look like they're kind of the runoffs from Shein. And it's just like she looked bad and cheap and the houses they were in looked they were obviously expensive, but they looked bad and cheap. And the show is so uninterested and unimpressed by the wealth. And I think this episode really made that stand out to me in a way that I don't think it has necessarily until now. Yeah, no, I, I didn't really uh, ping that. But now that I think back on all the sets and locations in this episode, um, very much so. Uh, just like a lot of big spaces, a little bit of minimalism, but like there's no style or aesthetic or, um, you know, if I was a billionaire, which if I was, feel free to take my head. Uh, <laughs> but like I would pay someone with like distinct taste uh, to come and do my place up. But I also think it's like the Roy's themselves are just like so unimpressive as rich people, like which with what you're getting at with like Shiv's uh, wardrobe and stuff. 
And like, it's also in the way they talk, like in their business meetings. I know like at some level, the writing is made so people who are not like knee deep in the corporate world can still basically follow what's going on. Um, But it's as someone who was knee deep in the corporate world for 15 years, (laughs) like it is exactly how dumb people sound. (laughs) Um, It is like exactly. And like the way like Kendall will say things that make enough sense that people can kind of figure out what he's saying, but like the words he chooses are all wrong or he'll say something that's just completely wild and out there, but because he just says it in a certain cadence and delivery, people just assume it's something smart. Yeah, um, It's almost like a bit that was in uh, the new Ryan Johnson Glass Onion movie, <laughs> but that movie makes the mistake of pointing it out to the audience. Daniel Craig does his, like Benoit Blanc, actually the words he's saying, I'm not going to do an impression, never mind. <laughs> that was uh, amazing. But, <laughs> But like, uh, so like every time they try to say something clever, they just say the stupidest thing ever. And if they can't even come up with something stupid to say, they just say the word fuck. Yeah. Um, it's like, there's like that old adage, whereas like people who don't have anything better to say curse. Um, and that's basically like the Roy ethos. Yes. So that's where you get like, what's her last name? Bridget random fuck <laughs> who made you the wizard of fuck. <laughs> and like just all these things where they, they can't think of anything clever or funny to say. So they just throw in a fuck in there and they expect that to make it up is like, yeah, it, it, it's a really good job of a bunch of fucking imposters with no real taste and are just unimpressive overall. Yes. Well, and so this is where I also think like the the character that stood out to me the most in this episode for like one knowing when to wield silence, but also being very careful about the word said and then also looking like she had the wealth that she actually does not have um is Willa um and and she's the one who has the most to lose um because her stupid fiance Connor is more obsessed with like buying that last percentage point with hundreds of millions than he is with like paying off his trophy wife to actually marry him and and that conversation at the end where she started getting a little teary when connor was like i'm gonna use some of that money we're gonna downgrade from getting married on a boat or whatever and and she gets tears in her eyes and and starts to cry a little bit and says you know well when i was a little girl i always dreamed of having a nice wedding and that was the most authentic thing i think like emotionally authentic thing i've i've seen in the show to date, save for what came later, which was Shiv just being too emotionally constipated to even have a conversation with her soon-to-be ex-husband in the kind of um, ruins of her marriage. But I think it really showed that, like, Willa is aware of her of the wealth, the potential wealth, and also the appearances. And also, I think, how to wield both in a more interesting way. And I think her, like, kind of careful silence and careful speech and, like, she's got a hair upgrade and her hair looks fantastic. It looks like it's a rich woman's haircut and and and, and dye job. And you compare that to, for example, Shiv, who looks like she never brushes her fucking hair. Like, Willa looks like she is the social climber she's meant to be in, in so many ways. And I think that's the kind of, like, I'm... There's the movie Ready or Not, which is a horror movie about a girl marrying into a rich family and then getting hunted down by them. And of course, she's the final girl. Um, And I think it's Samara Weaving, Hugo Weaving's daughter, um, who plays the main girl in that. I'm really hoping that that's like where Willa's headed. But like, I feel like it's either a race between her or for Greg for like who's going to be left standing in the ashes of the Roy household. Yeah, it's actually funny that Willa, because she's not someone who was born into this class or this family, um, so she is performing wealthiness at at a way that the other characters aren't. Uh, This also goes back to what we were saying about Tom being the biggest critic of Bridget's handbag, um, because he, you know, he comes from 
a well-off background, but he's not of this particular, you know, the gilded Roy's or whatever. Um, so he's also very like nice about that or not nice, but like very like specific about that. I think at some point he's called a clothes horse as well. That Mm -hmm. like Tom has a nice wardrobe. Uh, so it is kind of funny that the characters who aren't coming from wealth are, and I wouldn't say it's interesting or something new, but they're the most invested in kind of properly showing that wealth. Um, Logan can kind of skate by on his age because you just throw Brian Cox in a nice, you know, cashmere sweater and he looks great. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's just like, you know, Roman kind of has that like business chic down, but he's not like quite pulling it off to the point where he's like, you know, a babe, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and then Kendall tries to have style at various points, but then you also see him, like I said, he kind of oscillates and like bottoms out and then you'll just see him in a t-shirt and the worst fitting slacks in the world and a baseball cap (laughs) because he just, he tried so hard and then he has to go through his like, I can't try it all phase. Um, it, it is really funny, like, because the performance of wealth, it's like when we talk about in like other shows about performances of power and stuff in this show, like power and wealth are one and the same. And it generally is true everywhere. I'm not saying anything mind-blowing here, but it is almost, it is like, you know, you're in like 18th century France or England and that's how we should be looking at these characters or like Downton Abbey is a good frame of reference. Like who's done up, who's not, and what does it say about them? Yes. And and again, the Downton Abbey reference is good because Downton Abbey loves wealth and power and loves making you love the wealth and power. They're, you know, Mary Crawley, who is my favorite character in that show, oh, is she's so good. She's the so fucking good. devil. She is the fucking devil. And little Irish boy, IRA man, should have blown her to fuck the first time he laid eyes on her and didn't. But like <laughs> that show makes you love her because she's amazing. And this show in particular is like it's is to me the anti andor right because like andor is concerned with um taking people who might be unsympathetic and making them aggressively likable like mon mothma right everything mon mothma does in andor is like an embarrassment to everyone around her i'm like i just can't look at her or think too hard about her because i just like have heart palpitations i'm like girl why are you doing this to yourself? But she's so likable. She's so likable. And you just want to root for her no matter what she does. This show is like, these people maybe could be likable, maybe, but the show doesn't want you to like them. Like the show doesn't want you to feel any solidarity with them at all. It doesn't want you to sympathize with them. It wants you to know that these are like, not caricatures, but almost caricatures, like that that large-ass and like wealthy, rich people, the bourgeois class has become just like the most gluttonous, grotesque, sort of Dante's Inferno-like um, caricature of, of what they are. These people are so obsessed with their wealth that they have become something that is basically not human. Um, and so even though there may be moments of like rooting for Tom or for Greg or for Willa or even rooting for Shiv, like... It it doesn't the show doesn't really want you to do that. It doesn't want you to feel solidarity for it. And it throws up as many roadblocks as it possibly can to remind you that these people are really not people and and they are not good and not on your team. Yeah, no, I was thinking it secession is like if Dedra Mira Miro had her own show. Um, because you want her to like succeed against the other fucking people in her orbit. Um, but as soon as she breaks containment and has to impact real people, you're like, oh fuck, she's like literally the worst person alive. Yeah. Um, and that basically applies to everyone here, where it's like, you know, people talk about like, oh, who do I root for? There's no likable characters. And I'm like, well, shut up. Yeah. Uh, but also like, um, that's not 
always necessarily the point. Um, or at least like you have to maybe think about it or dig a little deeper, understand some of these characters and the situations they're in just a little bit deeper because it's not necessarily asking for absolute empathy or absolute sympathy or anything, but you think about the kind of situation they're put in, you're meant to put in the headspace of what kind of living conditions, what kind of childhood, um, having a dad like Logan Roy, how that would fuck you up. And then like taking all of that and warping it into the single situations and these funny characters. And you can really think about how fucked up essentially wealth is, how media is, how the U S power structure is and how the corporate structure is inherently dangerous to everyone in its vicinity. If, well, it's probably dangerous to everyone on the world, giving that like a hundred corporations are polluting it. Um, but it's just like, oh, I don't even know where I want to go with this, but I think People who worry too much about who to root for or who's likable are kind of missing what this show is about. And that just because you don't root for them in the absolute sense doesn't mean, yeah, I don't want Tom to fucking come out as CEO of Waystar, even though he is objectively a really bad person. <laughs> um, having a good moral read of characters is good, but I don't think it's the purpose of the audience to come down with an ultimate moral judgment on the characters if that makes sense yeah i think it's like about engendering sort of sympathy or like awareness of the conditions in which these like characters are made but then being like but don't forget they're still cunts so like we could be like rooting for kendall at any point against logan because like kendall is the underdog and we're all kind of predisposed to to rooting for the underdogs regardless of like whether kendall would actually make a better ceo or whatever but like the the important thing to remember is that like all of these people are still bad and the best case scenario is they get dumped into like a, a WWE cage match and like made to beat each other to death like and i think that's the thing that the show is always really good at is like reminding you that these are people but then also reminding you that these are like sort of corrupted half people and that like in the end um in the end there's not really merit in being like oh but these people are actually good or there's there's hope for these people or they could have a redemption arc like no the fuck they can't because they keep making these choices against it at any point any of them could walk away like any of them could walk away and and go do something that isn't this and we know this because like greg's grandfather mm -hmm. did basically that mm -hmm. like and all of them are choosing not to do that and that is like a functional and important part of of, of all of these characters and the show really likes um reminding us of of that um which i think also um maybe then gets into one of my other questions for you which is like and maybe we should just do this at the end of all of our episodes but like based off of this based off of your vibes your hopes your dreams and the episode outcome dream outcome end of uh or season four episode nine or ten or whatever it is what should the state of play be oh man um a part of me wants it to just go full Lear and like all the kids die <laughs> and Logan just stuck with no one. And then it has to go to like, maybe not even Greg or Tom. It has to go to like Frank or something like that. <laughs> I think that would be the ultimate. Um, I, I still feel like one of the kids is going to be ascendant in some way, not necessarily as Royco CEO, but I just feel like I don't see all three of them meeting tragic ends. It's like the Mr. Burns baseball team. Like one misfortune, I can see it. Two, unlikely. But to see all three kids just completely knocked out of the like competition would be a little bit much. Like if Shiv goes on to become like an Elizabeth Warren type, that <laughs> wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, if she ends up in the realm of politics, like you're mentioning. Um, but I, I, I wonder if Waystar Royco even survives by the end. Um, 
Like, I honestly wonder if between Gojo, between Pierce, and granted, ATN is buying Pierce, so, you know, ATN is in the power position. I wonder if there's a way that they all just kind of get fucked out of this business or the business just gets sucked up by um, the Skarsgård Industrial Complex or something like that. <laughs> the Skarsgård Industrial Complex. <laughs> I love that. Um, it is real. It is real. We must fight back against the Skarsgårds. There are simply too many of them. A new one every day. Um, <laughs> uh, your answer to that question, though. Oh, it's a pain because, like, my heart says, Willa, ready or not. My other heart, I have two hearts, uh, says Shiv, murder-suicide, leaving Greg standing there with the gun. Um, but my uh, slightly banter option is that um, uh, Sarah Snook gave an interview for that, the New York premiere of season four, uh, where she was like, the season four poster is like the Da Vinci Code. It explains everything you need to know about the ending of it. And a whole bunch of people rightly pointed out that in the reflection of the glass uh, in the building, the Waystar Royco building, you can see a tiny plane. Uh, so I'm also kind of rooting for Waystar Royco to get 9 11 Oh, man. It would be so funny if this was all actually set during 9-11. I guess the social media stuff kind of gives it away that it's not. But that would just be like the ultimate, like, no, 10 out of 10, no notes, ends with 9-11. It's um, <laughs> all we can really ask for. They, it, this yeah. was inside the Death Star the whole way through. And now we get to watch it burn as Luke Skywalker, uh, a backwater hick, cheers in the distance. All right, well... I feel like that's everything. I know it's a lot because we also have to get some of our like big series wide theses out in this first episode and thoughts we've had bundled up for the three previous seasons. Uh, is there anything else you want to touch on for this episode? Um, you know, the only thing is, I think the funniest part of the funniest and most heartbreaking part of the Tom Shiv relationship breakdown is that the thing that Shiv was maddest about was not really the Naomi Pierce thing. It was Greg. It was the existence of Greg. Um, and and that was the thing that she used as her sort of wedge into um, just kind of articulating as much as she could about her, her anger at the breakdown of their relationship. And that stuck out to me as like, girl, get, get some therapy for starters. But like, if you are only just picking up on this now, you've been missing it for, for way too long. And I just thought that was a, a little fascinating kind of insight into all three characters, Shiv in particular, and then I guess the show writ large. <laughs> yeah, no, that scene actually kind of ruined me. Um, yeah. Having gotten out of a big relationship and then sharing a space still. And you would have moments like that where you're broken up and you're mad at each other, but you're still like holding hands and crying with each other. Yeah. It is like such a complex and like overwhelming like emotion. And that's coming off like all these like corporate speaks and like this long merger and acquisition kind of episode where everyone feels like an empty human being or a shell. And then to just have this like final gut punch at the end, that's just like overwrought with emotion. It, it kind of actually really destroyed me. I thought it was like some of the best human writing that's happened on the show. And the show hasn't lacked for that, but it just does it so rarely because it's so invested in what like meat puppets most of its characters are yeah um that you rarely get these kind of moments where everyone has their guards down no one's really putting on a performance and like you really see what these like raw and scarred like souls underneath all these layers of wealth and performance actually feel like and are and it just makes you feel like shit yeah. um it's incredible I, lo I love stuff that makes me feel like shit 
Yes, same. I also love that. Um, exciting for the next nine episodes of this season where I will eventually just end up throwing myself off the wa- uh, non-fictional, fictional Waystar Ryko building. <laughs> so before Emily self-immolates herself, <laughs> uh, we want to thank our patrons, those new to our podcast. If you sign up at the 5 and $10 levels, Emily will develop a Middle Earth name for you based on whatever you want it to be based on. For our $10 patrons, we read their names on air at the end of every episode, and we read our $5 patrons on a rotating basis. So, Emily, would you like to thank our first patron? Yes. Thank you to Lothamana Palinka, a.k.a. Johnny Flores Jr. Thank you, Silent Spider, Guardian of Kirith Ungol, a.k.a. Ed the Revelator. And Maddie Hugh, also known as Isranar of Kokorthad. Aranwo Minyatar, a.k.a. Matthew Abbott. Lyqua Melma, also known as Zach Newman. Salquendil, a.k.a. Cam Lewis. Aranian Taranen, also known as Matthias Henson. Ronesse, a.k.a. Nick Smith. Penamel, a.k.a. Banjul. And for our $5 patrons, we want to thank Mirutumbe, a.k.a. Zach Moser. Is that how you say that? Because I see Dikimbi Matumbo when I look at that name. It totally is. No, no, that's exactly how you say it. You got it spot on there. Um, Beautiful. And we'd also like to thank Steve Nehemiah. And by the way, you can send us emails and questions about secession at mybrothermycaptain at gmail.com. My brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> and also, if you sign up for our Patreon at any level, you'll get access to our Discord where you can talk to us and also ask us questions there that we will read on air. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. I just gave you our email. Our socials are my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, where you'll get special bonus content and early access to episodes. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be liberating Mondale from the broken Roy Wamsgans household. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ithraglir and Drithion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review your, our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, congratulations on saying the biggest fucking number. <laughs>